Well, today is no ordinary day. That's a strong statement to lead off with here. But as far as the Western Christian liturgical calendar is concerned, it is no ordinary day. Now, now granted, I, I imagine that this morning uh, that there's not many here that are aware or follow said calendar. And possibly even fewer uh, would, would know that last week was Pentecost with red, next week we enter ordinary time with green, and today we celebrate with white. Any takers? No? No one knew that? Was anybody following that? A few, a few folks knew that? Now, all, that's all liturgical stuff. And quite frankly, between you and me, many here this morning probably don't care. <laughs> what? Or at, least, or at least it's not of great concern to you, might be the way to say it here. But let me make the case this morning uh, for each one of us that it should be something that we care about. That it could be something that could be transformative for us to, to inhabit this day, this particular Sunday, which is Trinity Sunday. Uh, for us to enter into it and to learn from it, because it's not only something that can shape today as a no ordinary day, but it's something that can help us each and every day. In fact, today's scripture reading, albeit short, reminds us of why the triune God is not only fundamental to the church's teaching and understanding, but also the very existence, uh, the church's existence season to season, week to week, day to day, even hour by hour. But wading into these waters may come with a risk. We have to admit that up front here. You start talking about the Trinity, and if your experience is like mine, the conversation gets really dry really quick. There's lots of metaphors and illustrations, things about eggs, water. I had one time a, a, a professor of mine said, maybe this would help. Think of the Trinity as a what and three who's. After he said that, I was thinking of one what and one who. What are you talking about and who came up with that? In fact, there's Todd Brewer observes uh, some of the challenges here of wading into this type of sermon when he writes, Many of the most boring and ineffectual sermons have been preached in the name of catechesis. Lacking any connection to real life, the preacher's lofty and sophisticated words are as dead as the theologians who wrote the now centuries-old creeds and confessions. So I had that in mind as I was writing the sermon this morning <laughs> on Trinity Sunday. So let's try to privilege real life here as opposed to lofty this morning. And consider a different path. And that's interesting to use that type of phrase, considering a different path, because that could be a subtitle for the two letters to the church at Corinth. But here's the challenge. If you've never read either 1st or 2nd Corinthians, from which our, our passage this morning is drawn from, and if you haven't heard a sermon or teaching from these texts, and you, you don't know the backstory, particularly at this point, but we're presented with the following snapshots. Be restored. Listen to what I'm saying. Agree with one another. Live in peace. I imagine a kind of picture would form in your imagination of the challenges facing this particular group. This lot is out of sorts, you might say. It's a misshapen community. It's at odds with one another. It's not particularly trusting of a, an authority figure or so-called authority figures. Perhaps a bit more troubling here might be that this particular set of descriptors could fit both an ancient faith community but also life in the modern age, in the social media age, we might say. 
For the Corinthian context, though, the community has given rise to factions. So this church has factions within it. And with this kind of division comes predictable behavior. Predictable because we see these kinds of responses when communities break down. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. That, of course, is the list that Paul will list out that he identifies in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. These patterns exist in our own day, in our own communities. But how do you counteract these? How do you come into a different way of living? How should a community, and particularly a faith community, live? Well, in bullet summary, we see that in verse 11 from Paul. First he says uh, what I call farewell is never simply goodbye. That could be this kind of like a love song, right? Is that the title of a love song? Track three, farewell is never simply saying goodbye. We see in verse 11, it includes the word farewell in our, our translation, but we also see a textual variation if you follow down to the footnotes for the word rejoice. Those seem like two completely different types of understandings of a word. But the word here that's translated has that range of meaning, and actually you can add a third range. It could also serve as an as a initial greeting. But reading this as rejoice is characteristically Paul. Paul uses this kind of language, the same language in Philippians chapter 3 and chapter 4. And rejoice would be no small thing, particularly coming alongside the coming list of injunctions that we'll see in the rest of verse 11. Especially as we come to know that in Christ, whatever troubles of the day, these are not permanent and they're not insurmountable. That the factions themselves are not irreversible. That's what rejoice communicates. In fact, locating the address in addition to rejoice with brothers and sisters, when you put that type of location there amidst the divisions, it reminds the people here who are reading this and about to see this list, there's something more. That at the end of the day, and if we were to use a terminology that we could be accustomed to in the New Testament, even the end of the age, this is a people who have been familyed by God. Whatever strife and difficulty exists in the moment is not going to be permanent. And for that, we rejoice. And following the lead of the letter to Philippians, when we see that word rejoice, we rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. But here's the injunctions as they start to roll out. Paul says, be restored. To counteract what's going on, be restored. This particular injunction can be confused, particularly in those translations where it's translated, be perfected. But here in our translation, restored is used, and, and that is a continuation of Paul's own prayer in an earlier verse, in verse 9. The sense here, of course, is that this community be appropriately together and in harmony with one another. Come back together, as it were, mending what has been broken. And that's the commitment they should have here, to be people who mend, who fix fences, who repair relationships. Another injunction is to listen to my appeal. Not my appeal, but Paul's appeal here in the text. The language behind this draws on the same verb we find at the outset of 2 Corinthians, where it speaks to a sense of being comforted by the God of all comfort who comes alongside us in our distress. So there may be a bit of that here in this injunction, but at the same time, as we hear in our translation, there is a, another sense found within the range of meaning here of heeding or responding to the writer's plea, namely, that which this letter has identified all along. I want you to listen to what I just wrote is what Paul just said. Come on, man. 
I didn't spend all this time writing this for nothing. So listen to this. No more quarreling. No more factionalism. No arrogance. But rather reconciliation, unity, and love. Remember all that stuff. He goes on to say, agree with one another. Yet another injunction. Translate elsewhere as, be of the same mind. The idea here is not of a community that is rigid in uniformity. It's not we're all going to think the same thing. But rather, one of diverse persons holding to a shared figure, Jesus Christ, a shared focus, the gospel and the kingdom of God, and a shared future together. The older I get, I become more convinced that this doesn't come easy. Nor does it seem like it comes all that naturally. But rather through God's own action in us and amongst us and for our part responding in what I say or what I call here in kind. We respond in kind to the way that God has acted in our lives. When I say in kind, I literally mean with kindness. But certainly also with a kind of generous orthodoxy in our dealings with one another and that we cultivate community. We cultivate it. We have to work at the till. We have to be out in the field. We have to be turning the dirt, pulling the weeds, harvesting the fruit and vegetables that come from that. Clearly not just in Corinth, though. This was not an issue just for this church. You see, Paul actually praised this in Romans chapter 15 when he says, May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's helpful for us to hear that in two different audiences, to know that this is something that wasn't just plaguing one community, but it's one that plagues Christian communities and communities of all sorts. And so it inspires me and encourages all of us to take action in our own day and age, in our own context. But he says this, another injunction, live in peace, live in peace. How different this is from life as combatants and warring factions. It's a natural outgrowth in the life of a community when the aforementioned injunctions are heeded. Philip Hughes will call this an outward consequence of the inward state of being of the same mind. The factions and lawsuits, envies and disorderly worship of 1 Corinthians, of course, gave shape to a people who were disjointed, disfigured, and abounding in disunity. According to Paul, that's no way to live. That's no way to be. And I think for most of us, we would agree. But also, God wants something different for you and for me. God wants us to be a people who live in peace. So imagine here a community where this is what people are striving for. These pieces that we hear in verse 11, that that's what they're striving for. That would be something special. That'd be a special place to be part of that. Be a, a particularly special way of living together. We see in verse 12 the reminders of just how special that would be. There's that physical embrace offered with true affection and love within a diverse community. And it's considered sacred. You see that with the holy kiss. Now, aren't you glad we're not fundamentalists? Because <laughs> there'd be a lot of smooching here this morning. Holy smooching, but smooching nonetheless. But that holy kiss, the embrace with even the handshakes that we offer and the hugs that we offer to one another, things that are, we might say are culturally appropriate for our context, they're done as a sacred act. 
they physically embody that sense of unity and that aspiring to be one. And that's what Paul's sharing here in this moment. And the communion to which these persons belong is far greater than the figures in the room. He talks about all the saints. This is a gathering that's much larger than even what we see here. So it inspires us to take more action, to be ones who serve, knowing that we're part of a larger, a larger kingdom. We're part of something bigger. And so we seek to live in a way that is better. But how do we get there? That's a lot of great talk. But how do you get there? In recent years, uh, if they have taught us anything, injunctions of this sort are often left untried, if not unsuccessful. Our capacity for doing the right looks rather limited. But remember, today is no ordinary day. In the past two decades, there's been a flurry of slogans where strong has been affixed to the word or locale to project a sense of strength, unity, and resilience by its bearers. Remember uh, quite a while ago now, those Live Strong bracelets, those yellow bracelets uh, we wore, or some of us wore, I never wore one, but I had other bracelets on my wrist at that time. But then there was Boston Strong. Remember when the, the Boston Marathon bombing? Boston Strong. And there's been many others that have followed tragedies and natural disasters, and perhaps not a few who are simply trying to make a tourist buck, right? Lots of strong out there. I kind of wonder if anyone's going to come out with one that's just like weak. Like I'm, I'm Des Moines weak. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> a couple of Des Moines people are going to beat me up on the way out of here. I'll show you weak, Jimmy. But today we can add to this list Trinity strong. Trinity strong. Because when we do, we realize that we're not alone in adding that to the list here. One particular famous example of this would be the work that's credited to St. Patrick. Yes, that's St. Patrick. It's entitled St. Patrick's Breastplate. It's also uh, called a number of other names. The Lorica is another uh, way that it's identified. But it could be entitled Trinity Strong as it serves as a prayer of protection that dates back at least a thousand years. And maybe you know this one or at least one of its more popular stanzas. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Fight, fight, fight. No, it goes on with more Christ. It's quite a recognition of the presence of Christ. But consider how that prayer begins. Consider how the breastplate even opens up and begins. It says, I arise today through a mighty strength. The invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness, of the creator of creation. Other translations will translate, I arise today with, I bind myself. But either way, the writer or prayer here is appealing to a source of strength that can effectively stand against the forces that avail themselves against them so that these same will not ultimately prevail. It's a prayer of protection that appeals to the triune God. How does that work, you might ask? How, do, how can a prayer like that even work? It works because it's rooted in a promise. Consider how one modern song inspired the prayer captures this promise. It says, I rise today in a strength that is not my own, I'm held by the promise of God that I'm never alone. And along with Patrick, the Apostle Paul would agree, as in verse 13 in our own text, we see an appeal to the same Trinity, binding oneself, as it were. For as Carla Works will observe, this same triune God is the one who will make new creation possible. Another reference to 2 Corinthians. That's both promise and its power. And though today may be no ordinary day, 
This is the kind of activity that God is up to every day, present to us and present with us, powerfully living into and keeping that promise. What might be one of the great all-time titles to an article, God Gives a Feck. (laughs) Jason, let's sink in a little bit. Jason Michelli writes this. He says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Solomon waxes in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not exactly. In making a promise, God commits himself to being both the author of history and an actor with us within that history. Trinity is nothing more than a shorthand way of narrating the fact that there is no other God but the God who acts within the very history he authors. God acts as Father. God acts as Son. God acts as Holy Spirit. The good news of great joy is that God is not abstract deity. God is a participant in his own providence. God is not abstract deity. This past week while reading in the Book of Order with our staff, you're like, man, that sounds like a fun week, doesn't it? (laughs) We came to section, in case you want to check us on this one, W5.0103. Did it sound more exciting by adding that? that? Did it add to your excitement level? It's a section on other practices of discipleship. I was reminded of this same picture of God being present and powerful, in which it says, all of these practices are meant to help us attend to the presence and action of God in our lives. Not abstract, but as a participant. God is present and active. And for this reason, I think Paul is rather crafty in placing one summary, the injunctions, alongside another, the benediction. To be the one, the community living in peace, will require the grace and salvation of the other, the triune God. And what a difference that makes. So where does that leave us moderns today? That sounds like that helps out the folks in the first century in Corinth. That might have been great for good old St. Patrick, when legend tells us him and his group turned into a flock of deer. Look it up. Look it up. They prayed it and they turned into deer. But where does it leave us moderns? Well, a couple of considerations for us this morning. One is this, is to bind yourself. To bind yourself to, to arise today in the power and promise of the Trinity. To invoke the power of the one who is present to you in all the challenges and trials you face this day and every day. And let the God of all comfort come alongside you and guide you to a new way a new pursuit. Let me translate that. I'm sitting at work. I'm having a bad day. Things aren't falling into line for me. Bind yourself to the Trinity. I'm at school. I'm having a lousy day. There was a day in seventh grade where I literally got cut from the basketball team right after I got cut from the jazz band. (laughs) I walked down the hall after getting cut and saw I got cut again. That was a lousy day. Bind yourself to the Trinity. Bind yourself to the Trinity. In your family life, your baby's screaming. You start screaming. Maybe before you start screaming, bind yourself to the Trinity. You come with a diagnosis that you've been to the doctors and things in your health are turning a direction, maybe not terminal, but certainly have gone sideways. Maybe set for yourself some goals and those goals haven't been achieved. Bind yourself to the Trinity. Whatever we face in life, whatever challenges come our way, whatever fears and anxieties, we bind ourselves to the Trinity. And each morning, even not just the bad days, but 
Maybe some of the days we're really looking forward to. We wake up with a real pep to our step. We arise today and we bind ourselves to the Trinity. That would be the first place I'd go. The second one would be to be restored. To be a people who pursue unity with God's help. Do that with God's help. One of the great obstacles, if not the great obstacle, to experiencing God's love and community is a characteristic that we share with those ancient people all the way back to Exodus chapter 34. We are what they called a stiff-necked people. Anybody here a stiff-necked person? Just in general, you just generally have a stiff neck. I kind of have one, I can't really. But we're a stiff-necked people. And Moses acknowledges as much when he prays, uh, Exodus 34, verse 8, If now I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, I pray, let my Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Of course, the events that led to that confession and that prayer would make a riveting screenplay. And I encourage you to sometime to read Exodus 34, kind of a case study on how to blow it in several different fashions. But I found particularly helpful this week a piece that Jennifer Vosters posted online for uscatholic.org. Vosters confesses that she has a perpetually stiff neck. Hers leads to painful headaches that she mitigates with gentle yoga. But Vosters goes on to note what she calls the psycho-spiritual side of a stiff neck. Namely, in quote, the inability to see both sides. A rigidness of thinking that leads to rigidness in our bodies. I'll post later this afternoon her article so you can see uh, the rest of what she's written. I'll post that out on Facebook for you to take a look at that. But here's something that I want to close with, a quote from her. As a people that are binding ourselves to the Trinity that arise today, the Trinity, here's what she says when she talks about this sense of stiff-necked people. She says, We are called to see beyond our own narrow one dimension, beyond even the two dimensions of, quote, both sides. And see into the vast, complex, three-dimensional vision of God, where the humanity of everyone on every side is our first and highest concern. As reminded on the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, that's today, that's Trinity Sunday. God's very nature stretches beyond two sides, beyond dualities, beyond binaries, into a three-dimensional outpouring of love, justice, and mercy. With this triune 3D, God as our compass, may we stretch our stiff necks enough to receive each other as we truly are, as God's own. Friends, there's a power and there's promise there. And exists within the God who is present to us, three persons, one God. It's no ordinary day for us. It's a day where we can see God's love for us expressed to us through each member of the Trinity. The grace, the love, the fellowship. My encouragement to all of us is that today we take that not only for today, but we take that into our lives for every day, for all our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us, a love that's been proven and demonstrated, has been shown to us time after time. It's now, Lord, as we continue to ponder these words that you have shared with us, that you've spoken into our hearts by the power of your Spirit, Pray, Lord, that they would be transformative and that we renew us, renew us to be the people that live in a way that enjoy and experience your grace and your peace. And from that, we bring you immense gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you're doing. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.